So today we're going to be talking about faith, and um, I've declared this month to be faith month. September is faith month. And I've noticed that people just like to declare months belong to certain things, and, and Canadians really run with it. And so this is my hashtag me too moment, and <laughs> me too. September is faith month, and it's part of a larger project um, that every month, Lord willing, for the next nine months, we're going to just celebrate one of the fruits of the Spirit. And there's a reason for this. Hardcore. Hardcore. Because we are in... Yes. Okay. I'm going to go here. September is faith month. So we'll read the verse where we get introduced to the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the description of what culture and life and the soul and the spirit of god is like and it's contrasted to life in the flesh which is full of all the opposites of these things in an unlimited amount of expressions of badness and i'm going to rejig some of the the order here i know that this order starts with love and it starts with love because love's the best Love is the best fruit of the Spirit. All the other fruits of the Spirit, all the expressions of the one fruit of the Spirit are expressions of love. And if you want to boil down to one word that you're going to characterize God with, God characterizes himself with love. However, we enter into relationship with this God of love through faith, through trust in him. And so we're going to start with faith. And I want to introduce you to a Greek word. da 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 Let's nerd this. So I want to introduce you to the word pistis. Everybody say pistis. One, two, three. And if you know Greek, you know the end is going to uh, change a little bit depending on its function in the sentence. But the core word in Greek for uh, faith is this word pistis. And interestingly, if you go into one of these Greek uh, lexicons, all the prov people, or who are here, put up your hand. Pierre's crew or any of the students. Okay, so you're going to learn what a lexicon is if you haven't already. And then you get one of them $5 college words and get to stand in front of people and pretend like you know something. <laughs> Anyhow, there's three main definitions of what pistis means in the Greek New Testament. And the first one is like faith or trust or confidence. It's that, that thing inside you where you you like believe in somebody, you trust somebody. And the second one is the idea of like the faith or true teaching. That's when something is true. You could use the word pistis to describe it. And then also it's sometimes used to describe faithfulness or trustworthiness. And that's why here in the list, you don't see the word faith there. Right at the end of verse 22, you see the word faithfulness, but that's just the one word pistis. And it has different meanings, different usages. 
Their word faith also means the faith, the true faith, the true doctrines of the faith, the things that um, Jesus accomplished and the things that the apostles taught. And it also means like faithful action. And they're all kind of connections. So uh, this is nerd time, I warned you. Essentially what it is, is that when you believe what's true, you trust it and you respond to it in a way that makes you trustworthy. Does that make sense? When you learn about the faith, you put your faith in it and then you become faithful to God by having faith in the faith. Does that make sense? And so all these three dynamics, these three perspectives on this word are there. And over the next three times I talk, Lord willing, barring catastrophe, we're going to take one of these perspectives and run with it. Going back to being, talking about the spirit, um, Calvary is a charismatic church. But even if you're not charismatic, um, you, you need to care about the spirit of God. Because we live in the age of the spirit. And what Jesus teaches us and what the Holy Spirit teaches us and what God teaches us is that when Jesus died for sin on the cross and when he rose from the grave and then when he sent the spirit into the church, he actually changed the phase of history that we are in. And we're used to these phases of historical change sometimes. So anybody remember where they were when COVID got announced? And then now your life is divided pre-COVID and post-COVID. But if you were in the 90s and someone used the phrase post-COVID, you would have no idea what they were talking about, true fact. Okay, does anybody remember where they were when 9-11 happened? Okay, put up your hand, yes. And then we became a pre-9-11 and post-9-11 world, true? And it defined the age that we were living in. Um, there was a time when you could get on an airplane without having a full body scan performed on you, performed on you, either with an x-ray machine, a metal detector, or a human. You just went to the airport and then got on the airplane. No longer. Does anybody remember where they were when JFK was shot? Is there anybody here? I see a hand. Okay. These are epic-making events where everybody... It changed your life. Um, I met a lady once in Vancouver who was from China, and she was talking about remembering where she was when the Tiananmen Square massacre happened. And she was just a few blocks away, and that event changed Chinese history and her, and it was just like part of who she was now. And we're, we have these events. And... When Jesus sent the Holy Spirit into the world, this was a human history changing event that goes from when Pentecost happened 2,000 years ago-ish to now that has changed everything. And how you can kind of think of it is before Christ, we were kind of stuck in the age of the flesh. Yes, there was Israel and yes, there was God's people, but everything kind of just functioned with people doing people stuff. Politics, money, war, disease, killing, brothers hating brothers, sisters hating sisters, mothers-in-law hating daughters-in-law, fathers-in-law hating sons-in-law. That's just how everything worked with few exceptions to the rule. And the prophets were prophesying a time when all of that ness and all of that death and all of that sin would be done away with. And it was going to be the age of the Spirit. 
It was going to be heaven on earth. Heaven in heaven and heaven on earth. And the two of them become one. And everything was going to be as good as God or better. But when Jesus sent the Spirit, what happened is that time of heaven broke into the time of the flesh. And now we live in this both-and time. Where, yes, the world of the flesh is still here, but it's dying, and you can see it dying every day. But the life of heaven and the age of the Spirit has broken into now. And it is us, the church. And God working through us. And so... The age of the spirit has broke the age of the flesh. That's what this picture is all about. Jesus has driven his Nissan into the, the house of the flesh, and now you can't live there no more. Okay, this is all anyone's going to remember from the message today. But I want you to remember this. Life apart from living in the Spirit is broken and cursed and does not work anymore. We are a people of the Spirit and that is our only option. And one of the things the Spirit does in us is He gives us, I believe, our initial believing, saving faith. He gives us a new birth that starts us off into a life of believing Jesus. And He is also the force inside of us that increases our faith so that we have ever-increasing, Lord-willing trust in Jesus until we see Him face to face. And today we're going to just read a story about this kind of heart confidence, trust in Jesus, which is so important and so necessary that if you have it, it changes everything, and if you don't have it, it makes everything worthless. Let's read a story about Jesus meeting people. That's just most of the Gospels is just Jesus meeting people. It's very interesting. And what it does is it makes your life super valuable because all Jesus did until he went to the cross was just meet people and change their life. And meet people and change their life. And meet people and change their life. And you can have that happen to you too because you're people. So you can meet Jesus and have him change your life. And he can talk to you and have him change your life. Simple. Except for the Jesus saying things that utterly tears your world apart. After he had finished all these sayings. So he just finished the sermon on the plain. And it was wonderful and devastating. And he just finishes that part where he says, if you, if you listen to what I say and you build your life on it, you'll be awesome. But if you don't obey what I say, it's going to be a catastrophe. And he, it says, after he finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, which is kind of like the Steinbeck of Israel at this time. It's not the major city of Jerusalem, like Winnipeg. It's an important city, but the people from Jerusalem probably thought, oh, you're from Steinbeck to the people of Capernaum. <laughs> now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued to him. So here's a problem. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, which means seriously, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Okay, so you're tracking with the story so far? Centurion, so he's a Roman uh, soldier in charge of roughly a hundred people. So he's, he's essentially like the, uh, the head of the RCMP detachment 
in Capernaum. If the RCMP were only populated by people from North Korea. Continuing on. (laughs) And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from... And if you're from North Korea, you're welcome here. I'm just talking about the geopolitical tensions that we experience, okay? That's all. I'm not... That's all. That's all. And Jesus went with them, and he was not far from the house. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And okay, the next little bit I'm stealing from Matthew because I wanted to reference it. So it goes in here. And then Jesus said, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when those who had been sent, returning to Luke, uh, to the house, returned, that's in there, they found the servant well. Let let that story sink in. So I'm going to make a bunch of observations about this. And if I can just be your brother, I'm not convinced this is in the most logical order. However, you're all used to online stuff where it's just a bunch of thumbnails and you flick and you flick and you flick. And so we're just going to flick our way through some observations here. And I might click on the thumbnail that I want to go a bit deeper on and it'll be all fine as long as the bandwidth doesn't cut out. Number one observation about heart confidence faith. That experience in you where you trust Jesus or not. When you're hopeful in Jesus or not. Where you believe in him or not. That experience, first observation, Jesus can tell where our faith is actually at. So in this story, you've got this centurion. Jesus is on his way to go do the miracle. And strangeness of strangeness, the centurion says to Jesus, actually, don't come. Right? Which I don't know anybody who would do that. You call the ambulance. The ambulance is on its way. They're the ones who are going to help you. They're almost there. You see the lights. No, actually, don't show up. This is unusual, to say the least. But the reason for Jesus not showing up there, uh, the centurion has his reasons. We might get there if I don't forget. But But the confidence level where he knows that Jesus, he sees something in him even though he's only heard about him. So it's kind of like us. He's never seen Jesus with his eyes. He's just heard stories about Jesus. He goes... If you are who you say you are, and I believe it, if you're really the Messiah King, the one that was prophesied about, 
You have the authority to do this without even showing up. Because I understand authority. I tell someone to do it, and they do it. And if they don't, I send other people to go and make them regret it. And so if you're who you say you are, which I believe, you just have to want it. Thus it shall be done. And Jesus observes what's coming out of this guy's heart being expressed with his words, and he evaluates his faith level. I've lived in Israel for decades, and I've never met anybody amongst God's people who even come close to trusting me like this guy is trusting me right now. Now, I know kind of what I've done right now is I've unleashed a wave of insecurity across the church. Right? Everything from, oh no, he can tell, (laughs) to, oh, am I going to make it to heaven? And everything in between with maybe a little bit of like, well, I'm glad he can tell how much I trust him, whether it's deserved or not. But if we're going to take the stories of Jesus seriously, and what else in the world would we take seriously besides the stories of Jesus in the Bible? He actually does care about how much we trust him. And he responds to people about with what he sees in their heart. Uh, so for instance, you might remember this story. They're out in the boat. The fishermen are rowing. It gets late at night. Jesus falls asleep. A storm comes up. They all think they're going to drown. And they, 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 uh, they wake Jesus up from his nap. And they yell at him, don't you care that we're going to drown? And he tells the storm to shut up, like turning off the alarm clock. And he turns to these fishermen who know they're about to die because they've spent their entire lives on the water. And he says, why do you have such little faith? Another time, they're out on the water and Jesus sends them away. And then he comes walking to them on the water. And Peter sees them and they think he's a ghost and they freak out. And it turns out to be Jesus. So Peter says to Jesus, call me out on the water. And Jesus says, And Peter gets out and he's walking on water. But he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he looks at the waves and he begins to sink. You tracking with me? Jesus reaches out, grabs him, lifts him up and says, Why did you doubt you have such small faith? To the only man who's ever walked on water who isn't God. He says... Your unbelief is showing. There's a time they're going to Jerusalem and Jesus wants something to eat because he only had unsweetened yogurt for breakfast and forgot to bring his raisin muffin with him. And so his stomach was starting to hurt before, but he doesn't feel pain while he's preaching, so it'll be fine. He's got nothing to eat, and he sees a fig tree as he's going to Jerusalem, and he wants something to eat, but it's got nothing but leaves, and so he curses the fig tree to die. And it happens, like, really quickly. And his disciples are watching, and they say, this is amazing! You just killed the tree! (laughs) Which is funny, it's got a bit of a weird miracle to be excited about. I like trees, and I find it hard to keep anything alive. So I'm always about, I'm, I'm surprised when it's alive, not when it's dead. 
And he turns on them and he rebukes them and says, hey, if you guys even just have a little bit of faith, you could talk to a mountain and it would be cast in the sea for all things are possible for those who would believe, who have faith, that have heart confidence in Jesus. And I read these stories and just spending time with them and and just... I know as like a pastor, and I joke about this thing, now it's time for me to bring the theology that takes away any insecurity about how Jesus actually treated his disciples. But then, but then I think, I shouldn't do that, because Jesus didn't do that. He didn't go, why are you surprised at the tree being dead? If you had faith, you could move a mountain. But don't worry, you're justified. But don't worry, you're justified by faith through, through grace. And no matter what happens, I'll still love you, and it'll be okay. He doesn't say that. He just lets the rebuke sit, like someone who loves them and is about to die to have them, and knows they could do so much more if they would just get over themselves. That's how he treats them. You're lucky you guys have me as your pastor, not Jesus, because I love you and I'll buy you coffee anytime you want. And I won't put any pressure on you guys to move any mountains. Not that there are any mountains around here, but I wouldn't mind if we could move some of these ex-garbage dumps that have dirt over them that are around here. I think one of the things that all of us should just admit to ourselves is that Jesus can really tell where our faith is at, our heart confidence in him to be able to do anything in response to prayer if it's his will. And we have to admit that Jesus wants more. And the reason I picked this story about this centurion is that he's, this, this story is one of the only times that Jesus is surprised for a good reason in the Gospels. Sometimes he's surprised by people's unbelief. He's more often surprised by people's unbelief. But this is one of the only times where he meets somebody and he says, I cannot believe <laughs> how much you believe. And this is such an un-Hollywood story because Jesus then just turns and walks away. The centurion never saw Jesus. He never saw Jesus. <laughs> this is crazy. Like, this isn't how we tell stories. He had so much faith, he never saw the Christ. But he still got his miracle. So there we go. I think it's really... Uh, Obvious from this story that that Jesus rewards faith. Is if we're going to learn something about him, Jesus is hungry to reward people's faith. Even it, when it is the small stuff. Okay, so Peter walked on water, and yes, he got the rebuke, but he also got to walk on water. And we as his people should remember that he wants our trust, and he wants to reward our trust. Number one, Jesus wants to reward people who trust in him with the forgiveness of sins and adoption into the kingdom and eternal life. 
This is what he wants to do. He wants people to say, I think, I believe you are who you are, and I'm going to trust you. And he wants to give them his Father and the Spirit and life and forgiveness and love and faith and hope and all this stuff. This is what he wants to do. This is why he wakes up in the morning, if there is such a thing in heaven. This is what gets him going. This is his thing, is to be generous with people who trust in him. Including you. Including you. Including you. This is who Jesus is. He wants to do great things for you because you believe in him. And yes, along the way, he'll also point out how you're not believing in him. But if you can handle having your pride kicked in the shins regularly, he can do amazing things. So I want to unpack some stuff going on here. Faith allows God, and I'm just going to talk about why Jesus, the Father, the Spirit, have kind of, I think, chosen faith as to be the thing. And the first reason is because faith allows God to give unlimited generosity to sinners. And I get that from here. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so, for me, again, I just think of the story, and I try to put myself there, and I'm just a friend of oddness. And... If you're one of those elders walking with Jesus, you've gone and you've caught him, and you've, you've, you've told Jesus... You've you got to come and do a miracle for this centurion. I, I, I know he's a Roman. He's got that uncircumcised thing. We don't need to think about it. He's ritually unclean. He eats the wrong food. But, but he built us a synagogue. What's the, what's the way into a pastor's heart? You build him a big building. <laughs> I'm just teasing. It's sushi. <laughs> but this is how they're thinking about it. Yeah, he's a Gentile. But he's done this stuff. And they're thinking like earned. And they use the word worthy. But as Jesus goes, the centurion takes this word Worthy, and he adds the unto the front, and he says, I'm actually unworthy to have you come to my house and do this. But I, I know who you are. And this, like, unworthiness becomes the actual thing that provokes this unbelievable response of not only the miracle, yes, he gets his servant healed, but this declaration that this guy's going to be at the table. I've been learning a little bit about uh, feasts, and, and I think when it's talking about this reclining at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those are the three patriarchs. They're the ones that got the big promises back in the book of Genesis that God is going to bless the entire world through them, which is ultimately fulfilled through the coming of Christ and the sending of the Spirit. 
But um, reclining table means like being invited to their feast. And I've, I've read about a few feasts recently because me and the boys are working through the old English poem Beowulf together. Anybody ever read Beowulf? Doesn't matter. I'm telling you anyways. Um, it's about this like Danish Viking king. Okay, I'm going to talk like that a lot during this story. This story's for you, Chris. Danish Viking king. Okay, and there's this one king and he makes this big like Viking house. If you know uh, the Lord of the Rings, the Rohirrim. You know, that, that, that house on the hill where all the soldier guys come to drink beer? It's like that. It's called Heorot. And um, the problem is, it's like the best Viking house ever. The problem is that there's this monster named Grendel who doesn't like noise. And their, their Viking parties sound like when the children are still in the sanctuary. It's just noisy business. So he keeps coming in the middle of the night and tearing people apart and eating them, which is a real killjoy when you're a Viking having a party. Because all these guys just sleep in this big Viking house every night. And so here's this ultimate Viking house, which is meant to be party central. And Grendel keeps coming and eating people. And so Beowulf gets in his Viking ship with his Viking bros. And they sail across that little place between Sweden and Denmark or whatever. I don't know geography. Beowulf says, I'm going to deal with this guy. And so they, they set up. They have their own little party in the house so that Grendel gets ticked off. And Grendel shows up. And they have this tussle in the night. And Grendel's like this monster. And his skin's too, too like thick for swords to pierce. And so Beowulf just puts him in an armbar. A Viking armbar. And he's so strong that Grendel rips his own arm off. And then Beowulf takes the monster arm. And he puts it up on the, the, the shelf as like his war trophy. And of course, they have a huge party. Well, the problem is that Grendel's mother's really mad. And so Grendel's mother shows up the next night and kills one of Beowulf's friends because they're having a party. And so Beowulf's now, he's really ticked. And so he has to go to her house, which is underwater, and cut off her head with a big giant sword. And it's wonderful. (laughs) And so when he comes back after killing this dude's mom, ultimate insult, um... They have to have another feast, another Viking beer party. And so I read this story about, you know, reclining with Abraham and Isaac. This is not a trip to Thermia, okay? This is God's ultimate victory feast that he's talking about here. This is everybody who's defeated sin and the devil are invited to this party. And the crazy thing is that this centurion is the last person anyone's going to think of being there. He's the military police upholding the oppression of Israel from the Romans. He's an unclean Gentile. He's got a slave. He is the wrong dude. But because he has faith, Jesus says, I'm bringing this guy to my party even if I have to cast out every single unbelieving one of the Israelites. Because even though they're quote-unquote God's people according to the flesh, I walk around and nobody's believing. This is tragic. And if you're one of the elders listening to Jesus like we're talking, You'd be so mad. Like, kill him mad. I think sometimes we read the stories about Jesus and we don't quite connect how many times people tried to kill Jesus in response to him talking. 
But this is the thing. Jesus is telling everybody, if you trust me, you're coming to the party. If you trust me, I'm bringing you to the Viking war feast. My dudes. Paul says our faith is about righteousness from faith to faith. We're justified by faith. We're made right by God by our faith. Through the gift of faith, we get everything God has to give us just by trusting. And everybody who thinks they can earn it to the point they don't need to trust anymore are going into the outer darkness. So we grow in our faith, but we never outgrow faith. And sometimes, you know, we can get there. We can get there as Christians. I've got my life so squeaky clean, I don't need to get forgiven anymore. You ever, anybody been in the faith 30, 40 years? And that temptation just to feel like you've got it now? You got this covered? I can get there. Number two, faith brings us back to right humility, both towards God and each other. Paul in the book of Romans says, hey, if you're getting everything by faith, what happens to boasting? What are you going to boast in? What are you going to be proud of? What are you going to think you're superior because of if every good thing that comes to you from God, his love, his provision, his gift, your hope, your future, your eternal life, just comes because you're trusting a mighty king to do it for you? Where does boasting come from? Even the church in Corinthians who were like a charismatic church and they were having all kinds of who's better than who problems. like, And that never happens nowadays in any charismatic churches at all. Which is, I don't even understand why it's in the Bible. But he goes to them and he says, this guy's got this gift. This lady has this gift. You think your tongues make you up here and you think your works of service make you down there. And he just says to them, What in the world do you have that you didn't get given? We're all just the Amazon delivery person. Everything in our truck is bought and paid for by somebody else. And we either deliver it to the person, right? And the boss says, good delivery. Or we keep it for ourselves and take it home. And the boss says, the cops are on their way. Right? Something like that? Weird analogy? I don't know. We'll talk later, hon. <laughs> but just be, be getting everything by the gift of putting our confidence in Jesus actually brings us back to this healthy relationship where we're reminded that he is God and the only God and we're just his creatures. And it also helps us have humility towards each other. I'm just so captivated by that centurion saying to Jesus, I'm unworthy to have you come. Like, that's not a small deal. He's the conquering centurion amongst the conquered people, but now he's saying to one of the conquered people's people, I'm not even worthy to see you. How humbling, how humiliating, how getting out of the whole Romans rule over the Jews thing. But he's doing it to get his servant's life saved. 
His humility towards Jesus and his humility towards the Jews winning the life back of his servant. And when Jesus just rewards this guy off the charts, he's saying to all of us, you can drop it. You can drop it. You can drop the rat race. You can drop the comparisons. You can drop the the wondering how you're doing. You can drop it. You can drop it. I'll give it to you by faith. I'll give it to you by trust. I just want to give it to you because you believe I'll give it to you. I just want to I just want to be generous with you because you think I'm generous. I want to do good to you because you want to do good with what I do to you. So just just you can stop judging yourself. You can stop judging other people. This is the basis of when I say let's when we gather as a church, let's not gather to to think ill of each other. Because one of the crazy things is, is we actually need to learn how to treat each other like somebody God has completely forgiven. Yeah, we know their story. We know what's happened. We've heard the stuff. We've heard what's said. But if in God's sight they're chosen and accepted and blessed for their faith, who are we to sit in judgment on God and them? It's a dangerous thing to judge people because they may turn out, yeah, they're a centurion. Yeah, they're a Roman. But Jesus might think they might have the greatest faith alive. Also, faith is just such a wise thing for God to give us is because it actually restores us to real relationship. Um, you know what's weird? Those wonderful Hollywood people, you know the Hollywood types, the beautiful people, the rich people, the beautifully rich people, the people rich and beautiful people. You know who I'm talking about. They get into relationships and then they like break up. How does that happen? If you've got two people who are like the beautiful people and the rich people, and they actually like like each other, or at least like the photos of themselves being together, why would they ever, why would it ever go bad? Is it because actually, if you don't trust a person, they can't look beautiful to you anymore? Is it that if you don't actually have a trust relationship with somebody, they can never actually be attractive looking to you anymore? No matter how many surgeries they get or how much money they put into their hair, they can't actually look attractive because you don't trust them? And when our hearts have unbelief in it, no matter how good God actually is and no matter how beautiful he actually is, no matter how wonderful the life he gives you, even though you don't trust him, no matter how kind or how many rescues or how many provisions, if you don't trust him, you're just going to mistreat him. And so when Jesus makes our heart confidence, our trust in him, the thing even though we're not earning anything, that we're not deserving anything, and we can't say, look, I'm doing you a favor, it does bring us back to the foundation of every relationship, which is trust. Your marriage is as good as your trust. Your church experience is as good as your trust. Your partnership in business is as good as your trust. And once those things start getting damaged, nothing really feels that great anymore. And we fight about all kinds of things. You're going, oh, you left the toilet seat up. We don't even own a toilet. It's a urinal. And you just fight about everything. And the issue is this. My trust is damaged. 
And you don't care that my trust is damaged, which even brings down my trust even further. And you can have beautiful, good, talented people having relationships explode just over, we don't trust you anymore, and I don't trust you anymore. True? And so God is actually, he's not just making this up, he's actually doing what's right. I will give you the world if you trust me, because us having a trust relationship is everything. If you trust me, and then I can entrust you, this is life eternal. And this is the only kind of relationship you'd want to ever have last forever. So we'll bring it together. We're going to hopefully, Lord willing, spend a few months thinking about this age of the Spirit and our life in the Spirit. We are not people of the world. We are not people of the flesh. This isn't who we are. We've come to faith in Jesus, and he's given us everything. And he's promised that there's going to be so much trouble along the way. Because without trouble, your faith never grows. And my faith doesn't grow. Without trouble, we don't know what's in our heart. And Peter says this. I'll even quote it so I don't just give you the the Rob made-up version. He says, In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Can you just put up your hand for your brothers and sisters if you are being grieved by a trial today? Everybody look around. Please be honest, just for the sake of my experiment. Nice and high, everybody. Come on, this is now becoming a trial. There are people in the room who today say, my life is characterized by suffering. So that the genuineness of your confidence in Christ, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Jesus' plan in your situation is to one day put you up on a pedestal and say, I just want to praise this person they trusted me in their trial and they're awesome and they're wonderful and this is their VIP ticket to the Viking party and it's going to be the best. And that's not the whole story but that is the main story of why you're having troubles today so that in your confidence in Jesus you can be praised by the one who loves you. And where you see unbelief in your heart robbing you and tiring you and stressing you and anxieting you and wavering you, you can say, Holy Spirit, kill that thing. Holy Spirit, save my heart. Holy Spirit, rescue me, not just from my situation, but from my heart situation. Make it different. Make a change. I want to please Jesus with my trust. Do the work in my heart, Holy Spirit. Pistis is a work of the Spirit. You can ask the Spirit to change your heart. And it is the best life. So, let's pray. Father God, I just bless this group of people. And Lord, I know you've been bringing up thoughts in people's life, but I give you this month, and I pray this would be a month where supernatural capacity to trust you with confidence would come into our minds and hearts. Lord, where we're worried and worrisome, where we're afflicted, I pray, I pray for the power of the Spirit to do what Jesus loves in his people. Father, I pray, Lord, where we've just gotten the habit, where we've given up on hoping for different. Lord Jesus, I pray for faith to come for change. 
Father, where we're the problem, where I'm the problem, where what I see and my vision is just hemmed in by hurts of the past or my own disappointment in myself, Lord Jesus, I pray that the gift of faith would come to liberate our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus. Lord, where this centurion had so many people around him who could be judging him for just choosing how to trust Jesus. And Lord, you know us Steinbackers. We carry the weight of what we think people are thinking about us so heavily here. And Lord, without judgment, I pray for relief and release. That the knowledge of your love and your commitment for each one of us would be like balloons underwater drawing our hearts out of being in the ocean of despair and worry and concern into the light and the life of trusting Jesus and trusting other people to Jesus. And that we would have such a deep freedom, the freedom of the faith. And all God's people said, Amen.